News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about what's going on in the United States today, potentially on the verge of a seismic shift down in that country because the Democrats are trying to enshrine abortion access into law. And all of this comes after the uh, leak of a U.S. Supreme Court draft opinion last week that potentially could overturn that landmark Roe versus Wade ruling. What does all that mean, though? And how does it impact the issue of abortion access? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So what does this mean that the U.S. Senate is voting on this? So it means that uh, Democrats are trying to get ahead of any uh, Supreme Court ruling that could come down by the end of June that would take away the constitutional right to be able to access an abortion. But number two, bringing this to the Senate for a vote today will force those lawmakers that have uh, an anti-abortion stance on the record. And that's important because we are just five or six months away from midterm elections in the U.S., And what Democrats can do is now take this and turn it into a secondary top line item on the campaign. Okay, so it's not about getting it passed. It's about finding out where everybody stands. Well, I mean, look, they would like to get it passed. They would like to be able to say if the Supreme Court is ultimately going to overturn this, we want to have this codified into law so that women across America can have access to abortion without any kind of restrictions or bans in their way. But knowing that they don't have the 60 votes to overcome the the Republican filibuster, uh, this is an opportunity for them to symbolically show that they are supporting abortion rights by saying, look, Democrats are on side with uh, popular opinion in America, uh, and we want to hold Republicans accountable because many Republicans haven't wanted to come out and talk about the context of that document that was leaked because they're on the other side of popular opinion. Right. Okay. And what have the protests been like over the past week? I know they were really fired up in the first couple of days. Some of them, though, it sounds like have even targeted the Supreme Court justices. They have, uh, and there are actually expected to be protests at all six conservative justices' houses at some point today. This is something that Republicans have been uh, really pushing back on and calling out, saying that this is inappropriate. They've been taking to the houses of Republican lawmakers as well, including Susan Collins, uh, her her actual home up in uh, in the Northeast, up in New England. Uh, there was chalk markings outside of the sidewalk in front of her house. She had to call police. There is a legitimate and 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 growing um, fear here amongst. Women women uh, and, and abortion rights uh, advocates around the United States, that rights are going to be taken away and there is going to be a looming health care crisis for women, for marginalized communities. Uh, and Republicans are simply, you know, finding themselves at the center now of this controversy. Okay, so that official ruling, I guess, could come in a matter of weeks. Are states preparing for this? And if so, how? So, yes, uh, the, the ruling is expected to come sometime in the end uh, of June. Whether or not, you know, it opts to be overturned, that's something that we still have to see. There is still a chance here that some of the justices may not fall in line with that draft memo that was put forth uh, by uh, Samuel Alito. Uh, how states are preparing for this, it depends on the state. There are 26 states that are in the process of potentially putting a restriction or ban in place on abortion access, but 13 of those states have what's known as a trigger law. That means as soon as the Supreme 
court makes a decision, they overturn a ruling, it becomes automatically applied to those states. And that is where some of the fear is amongst abortion providers, uh, that they are going to be put in a position of potentially going against uh, their oath as doctors to do no harm to women because states will automatically bar them from being able to carry out these kinds of procedures. There's a fear that this is going to impact marginalized communities across the U.S. But still, when you have 26 states that are actively looking to restrict a woman's access to abortion, you have other states that are now trying to expand that, including in Connecticut, where they just signed into law a, 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 a legislation that will make it impossible to sue doctors, impossible to sue people that are assisting with abortions. Other states are trying to pick up the slack for what some states are going to be taking away. Reggie, that sounds so chaotic, right? That every state is going to have a different set of rules regarding this. Yeah, and look, it's really going to uh, to have an impact on, on some of these Republican states that have, um, you know, uh, a poorer population or a population of people that are going to be unable to find access to uh, the closest clinic to them. And that's where these doctors fear that there's going to lead to a healthcare crisis because if a woman's not able to uh, access the healthcare that they need, that poses problems for the woman. It poses problems for the family. But then there's a growing fear that this could lead to an economic crisis because now somebody may be forced to take care of a child that they're unable to care for. So there is a rippling effect here, and it will be state by state depending on how this works out. But even where we are right now, Simi, there are some states in the like the Dakotas where there's only one operating right. uh, clinic left. And some people are forced to drive 15, 1600 miles just to get to that appointment. And then there are rules in place that say you have to wait three days. So they have to go home and then come back back three days later, 33,000, 4,500 miles driving just to get these procedures. That's what's in place now, and it could get worse. Oh, wow. Okay. And what do the polls tell us in terms of how Americans overall feel about what's happening? Well, this is why Republicans aren't talking about what the context of that leaked document was, because, again, they're on the wrong side of popular opinion. Most Americans, 6 in 10, some polls put it closer to 7 in 10, are in favor of unfettered access to uh, to to this procedure. Uh, and Democrats are saying, look, this should be accessible up to 24 weeks, up to fetal viability. So the majority of Americans are actually on side with keeping abortion laws and abortion uh, access in place and not taking it away. Republicans are trying to lean into the more anti-abortion sentiment across this country, saying that this should be left up to the state's rights. This shouldn't be a constitutional right because the wording of Roe v. Wade was too Uh, kind of egregious and erroneous in their eyes. But at the end of the day, when the majority of the country is for something, this is going to make it much easier for Democrats to latch onto this and run with it in an election, which is going to be a critical election because power in Washington is on the line. And Republicans have already said if they get access to controlling the Senate and the House, they may put a national abortion ban in place by eliminating the filibuster that they're using right now to stop Democrats from making it legal. So there are big ramifications that could come if Republicans take control. All right. Well, you're going to have an interesting couple of months, aren't you? Uh, Reggie, thank you for that. Thank you. That's Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Never a dull moment in U.S. politics. And clearly, that is the case today as the U.S. Senate expected to vote on national abortion protections in the wake of the potentially upcoming Supreme Court decision that suggests Roe versus Wade will soon be overturned. So definitely updates to come on that. This is Mornings with Simi. 
It is a very common criticism of us here in Metro Vancouver that we don't do enough to protect our heritage buildings, that we seem to think onwards, upwards, and, you know, the next building is going to come along and it's going to be even better. And you know what? It's easy to see why that happens when we look at the situation in North Vancouver. Our Raji Sohal is with us now to talk about this. Raji, I found this so sad. Oh, it's such a sad story. You know, one of my favorite things, all-time favorite things to do is to go for a walk, not just in my neighborhood, you're going to think this is weird, but in other people's neighborhoods, like just residential random neighborhoods, because I love looking at houses. And there's not that many houses that grab my attention. So if I see a cool looking architectural gem, it just, it makes my day. I especially love like the old mid-century modern ones. And in North Van, there's this special home. It's called the Forrester Residence. Uh, It's a one-story home with a detached cabin. And it was made after the Second World War. And it includes lots of natural light and just all these cool features. It really sticks out a special place. Well, it is no more because the Forster residence was demolished and somewhat accidentally. So what happened was it's a heritage house. It's not supposed to be demolished, uh, but the developer who got a permit initially to work with some of the bones had they had to they were told they had to retain some of the original building uh, just leveled it. They leveled this gorgeous building. And after leveling it, uh, they got in trouble and had to pay a fine. A judge ordered the developer to pay $200,000 for demolishing this uh, West Coast modern heritage house without permit to do so. And they went after the architect too. The architect uh, pleaded guilty and was fined $10,000. And I mean, these are, they're big fines. Yeah, they are. They're if they're big enough to deter this kind of thing from happening again. But it's just such a bummer, Simi, because we don't have many of these uh, gems around town. And so the ones that we have, I think we need to put extra effort in in just protecting them. Oh, I saw the pictures of this house and I loved it. I thought it was just so cool, this house. it was. It is a gem. It would have been beautiful if it had been restored. And you know what? It would have been worth a lot of money. And what I don't understand is if you're a professional company, right? The demolition company, the architect, the contractor. How do you demolish an entire house without making sure you have the permit? That I don't understand. I don't get that part because I talk to developers. uh, I know some developers personally, and they tell me that permitting is like the worst part of their job because you have to be so meticulous about everything, make sure you're doing everything correctly. So to me, this seems, I don't know, kind of impossible to (laughs) have made such a large mistake about. But apparently, uh, you know, after they pleaded guilty, they, they did say that they... Uh, didn't understand the parameters around which they had to work. That they they said the building wasn't structurally sound. Right, but then you couldn't... go back to City Hall and you explain that to them. They they should know that. Like if so, how are you? How are you even in the business if you don't understand that? Yeah, exactly. And I don't think this company would probably do something like that again because the optics of it would just be really bad. But two hundred thousand dollars for demolishing it. I I like the message that it sends though to people in the the development world, uh, people who develop buildings and homes, just that they do, you know, that these buildings are cherished and treasured by communities, and that uh, people don't want you to level them. 
I know, but you know, we have a history of doing this and, and in Vancouver in particular, we, we tear things down and then we regret it. Like we, years later we'll be like, Oh, look at this beautiful building that used to be here. How did we allow this to get torn down? Uh, I remember doing a story years ago about that, going into the archives and taking a look at some of the things that had been built. For instance, I'll just the HSBC building just across the way here oh, yeah. in downtown Vancouver. I remember when that was built, we tore down a beautiful the medical dental building that was there, the Georgia Medical yes. Dental Building. And it, and everybody always says, oh, the Georgia Medical Dental Building was so extraordinary. It was. It really was. And yet we tore it down. And now for years, we'll talk about how beautiful that other building was. We just have a history of doing this. Yeah. In my own neighborhood, I'm seeing a lot of new condos go up, but uh, something had to come down in order to make those huge condo buildings. And in one case, it's this beautiful, uh, brutalist style of architecture building, uh, just like tons of heavy concrete and I really loved this building. It was such a standout in uh, in a very low skyline, and uh, it's gone. And now this like shiny, I know. very tall tower is in its place. You know, right where we are actually here at Pacific Center in downtown Vancouver. I remember learning about the Opera House. Do you know what the Opera House was? No. This is a building that was on this spot from 1891 to 1969, and it was beautiful. It was huge. It was impressive. It was essentially the center of kind of cultural institutions in the city, and it kind of fell into disrepair in the late 1960s, and it was demolished to make way for the Eaton's department store. Oh, Remember yeah. the big white kind of just block building I, yeah. that we put up, which is no longer here because it's been remodeled and it looks much better now, but just... That's what we demolish. And when you go and look up in the archives what the Vancouver Opera House looked like, you think, oh, man, we tore that down. Imagine how beautiful that would look. Oh, yeah. I fear us are losing so many of those gems in our in our neighborhoods right now, especially the residential uh, buildings. For me, that, that always tugs at my heartstrings for a Vancouver that I've you know I have never known that when I see yeah. buildings from like the 60s go or the 70s. Yeah, I'm glad to see there was a big fine in this one, $200,000 for the accidental demolition of that uh, modernist house. Uh, thanks so much for that, Raji. Thanks. Sim- this is Mornings with Simi. Are the coffers at WorkSafe BC overflowing? Well, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business thinks so. According to the numbers that they have crunched, they say the assets of WorkSafe are 153% higher than its liabilities. So they peg those excess funds to be in the neighborhood of $2.9 billion. So if that's the case, what should happen here? Should that money come back to you, to the business owners and people who have paid that money? Joining us now to talk more about it is Annie Dormuth, who's the BC Provincial Affairs Officer for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Annie, thanks for being here. Always great to be on the show, Simi. So how did you calculate this? Well, we looked at basically a pretty much a cross-Canada analysis of WCB boards and found that there are definitely some outliers that are above their own funding target of their liabilities and what they feel is um, the right amount of percentage over 100% that can that, that basically means the, the board can be funded. It's not going to create um, higher premiums or anything like that. However, when you're reaching, you know, a funded position at 153%, like in BC and also other provinces, I, I, I point to PEIs in a similar situation, you know, that's when we start to look at these positions and say, you know, given the times right now of how much business owners have been dealing with for the last two years, 
with economic recovery not yet a reality, all of them dealing with some cost pressures. Now it's time to re- rebate some of that money to help business owners at a time when they very much could, could need it. Has WorkSafe ever done something like that before? Well, over the last seven years, you know, one of the mottos at CFIB is never give up, never go away. And for seven years, we have been calling on uh, WorkSafe BC to do a refund such as this and still no dice on that front. We've even delivered, you know, 5,000 petitions directly to WorkSafe BC on behalf of business owners who would like a refund. And uh, once again, reiterating our calls for WorkSafe BC to do that. Okay, well, Annie, let me play devil's advocate here for a moment then. Shouldn't, isn't that money better to stay there in case workers who are now heading back to work after perhaps not being you know, in the workplace for a couple of years, shouldn't they keep that money in case they're going to need it for people who need help? Again, we stress that the W WorkSafe BC's own target is 130, 30% right now. Uh, we're now going into the upwards of 153%. That equates to around $2.9 billion. Uh, perhaps they don't need to refund all of that $2.9 billion, But obviously, you know, they need to look at this funding threshold and what they're sitting on right now. And some relief could be provided to business owners right now. For example, in Ontario, they did, you know, roughly around a 2%, I believe, uh, rebate just this year when, um, of course, they could have gone a good, could have gone a bit higher. Um, But again, you know, we we stress the importance that for two years now, um, over two years, business owners have sacrificed quite a bit in, in, in the sake of following public health orders and protecting the public health. Um, they went to great lengths to do so. And, uh, of course, coming out of economic recovery, um, facing a lot of other cost pressures that, of course, we, all, all British Columbians are dealing with right now. And this is where now is the time to help business owners and provide a bit of relief and rebate on, on, on their premiums. Now, is there another way to approach this? For instance, rather than rebating some of that money, what about lowering premiums for the next couple of years? That is definitely something that uh, would be, I would have to say, you know, our, our second best uh, recommendation to WorkSafe BC. Our first call, of course, is that refund. And then, you know, second call would be looking at reducing premiums. Again, some other provinces have done that throughout the last couple of years, such as Ontario, who has uh, reduced premiums as well as provided a rebate. But our first call is definitely asking for a rebate. And so what has been the situation? You mentioned Ontario there, but what about other provinces? Well, other, like I said, Ontario has recently rebated around $1.5 billion back to employers. Um, recently, Manitoba rebated $95 million. And uh, just last year, PEI, who's also, I would have to say, you know, in comparison to BC, at an overfunded position as well, uh, provided a $25 million rebate. Okay, so you're saying BC needs to get on board with this. That is definitely what we are saying. Again, we're calling on the provinces that are in that overfunded position. There are a few provinces that aren't there yet. Um, For example, Alberta's, you know, I would have to say refund threshold is 128%, and they're only being funded at 121 right now. So we're not calling on those provinces. However, there's definitely, again, some outliers here that could provide some meaningful relief to business owners right away. Oh, that's interesting. Annie, thank you very much for your time. Of course, always great to be on the show. That's Annie Dormuth, who's the BC Provincial Affairs Officer for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. This is a good question for business owners out there for whom, you know, WorkSafe BC is a part of all the paperwork, the process that you have to deal with for your employees. What would what would you prefer, a rebate or reduced premiums for the next few years? Like, what would be a better thing for you? Let me know, simi at cknw.com or call our buzz line 604-331-2899. 
This is Mornings with Simi. I suspect most people don't even know this is going on. And the cost of this, this is going to demolish and displace thousands, uh, demolish thousands, hundreds and hundreds of low-cost, low-rise rental housing right now that people have that's affordable, that's under, under rent control increases. All right, that is well-known Vancouver resident Bill Tillman. He was speaking on the Mike Smith show this week, and no secret there about his opposition to the Broadway subway plan and the impact that will have on development along the Broadway corridor. He has been advocating quite loudly and quite fiercely against this plan, which, by the way, is going for a vote to Vancouver City Council. But there's been a lot of discussion about protests against the plan, people like Bill Tillman who've been out campaigning against it. But what about what he said there about how this will demolish protections for renters, not have as much stock available to them? What do other people think of this plan? Well, let's talk about that. Kit Sauter is with us now, co-chair of the Vancouver Renters Advisory Committee. Kit, thanks for being here. Morning, Simi. How are you? I am good. Thank you. Tell me, what do you what do you think when you hear the stuff that Bill Tillman has been saying? Well, I mean, I appreciate the, the place of fear that Bill's coming from and what he's trying to sell to folks. But the reality is that um, the Broadway corridor already has the most affordable rental uh, in the city. And some of the most affordable rental compared to uh, a lot of the other urban cores uh, around the region. The thing that Bill isn't talking to people about is the fact that most of those buildings were built in the 1950s and 60s. So without the Broadway plan, those buildings are going to get either torn down to their studs or demolished in the next 15 to 20 years, no matter what happens. And the cost of that impact without the Broadway plan is that those folks are going to be hurled out of the city because they won't be able to find affordable rental and places to live. So you feel that it's like demoviction in the next decade or two versus planning for more rental housing? Yeah, so the Broadway plan's done uh, a lot of work. Staff at City Hall have done a lot of work. Some of the um, consultations and plans uh, have been being worked on for more than a decade. The actual consultation for this process started in March of 2019. So we've had a a three-year consultation process with thousands of folks. And I personally participated in more than a dozen hours of uh, consultation time with staff at public hearings and and webinars and things like that. The work that's being done in the plan is to make sure that we can have gradual change along those corridors, right? When you look at Canby, when you look at Oak, when you look at those three and four story walk up um, rental apartments that are gorgeous, they're in leafy neighborhoods, um, eventually those buildings are going to meet their end of life and they're likely meeting their end of life in the next 10 to 15 years. And so as a consequence of that, the Broadway plan plans for gentle infill along those corridors while having density being built at the rapid transit stations where we're putting in the Broadway subway line, which will result in the equivalent of removing 12,000 cars from the road worth of emissions. Right. What about the criticism, though, Kit, that they're, we're building towers here and they're not as community-oriented and it won't be it will have the same kind of community feeling? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm super sympathetic to that. Like, I understand that folks who live in comfortable single-family homes and smaller uh, walk-up apartments, I live on one uh, in one on Kingsway, um, feel like those towers jut into their neighborhoods. I get that. Um, simple fact of the matter is that we have a lot of people who want to live in Vancouver. And for good reason. It's a great city. But the current estimates are that we have a deficit of 86,000 housing units. And just to keep pace with that, 
we're going to need more than 14,000 units built every single year. If the Broadwind plan gets approved next Wednesday and goes into effect, we'll probably only be seeing three to 5,000 units of housing built per year starting a year or two from now, and then it ramping up over time. So this isn't going to be uh, a raising of the neighborhood. People aren't going to see houses and apartments getting bulldozed all over the place, like Bill has been telling people. The reality is that this is a long-term plan. And by the time it's completed, I'll be looking at retirement, and my two-year-old who's in the next room will be my age. Okay. Do you think, though, are there adequate community facilities as part of this plan? I've had quite a few people email me saying, no, it's about the community centers and the lack of amenities. Yeah. So, I mean, in all long-term capital planning, uh, one of the things that has to be weighed in balance is how it's going to get paid for. So uh, a lot of the same folks who participated in the protest at City Hall and support bill are the same folks who, rightly or wrongly, also spend a lot of time talking about how they don't like the existing tax levels that they receive from the city. So one of the choices that needs to be weighed is, do you want more neighbors who pay their share of tax and help carry the burden of those investments in your community? Or do you want those investments in your community and do you want to pay more for them? And so welcoming more people into our neighborhoods so that they can help shoulder the burden, bring in their own ideas, their own art, their own culture, support growth and investment uh, is something that I'm personally supportive of. And and I'm a beneficiary of I I wouldn't have been able to move into Kensington Cedar Cottage if a purpose built rental hadn't been built on Kingsway in 2017. I've lived there for five years. I just moved into a two bed and it's large enough for my wife and I to plan to have a second child. And that matters. Okay, so you mentioned Vancouver is a great city. Can we keep it a great city if this plan goes ahead? Well, what I'd argue, Simi, is that the the threat that we're facing is actually that if we don't move ahead with the Broadway plan, if we don't move ahead with a robust change to our zoning practices so that we can bring down permitting times, uh, make sure the buildings can get built in a timely manner, bring down the cost of housing, which is the core driver for affordability for most families, What's going to happen is we're going to continue to see neighborhoods across the city, but mostly west of Canby, hollow out. So when folks want to see new community centers, new investments in schools, you need to have neighbors who are using those services to justify the expenditure. And for the folks who are listening online right now, uh, probably driving in a 20, 45 hour and 20 minute commute, I think that we would all benefit from living in neighborhoods that are leafy and walkable where you can walk out the front door of your apartment pick up a coffee, and get into the office in less than 25 minutes. Do you think this plan is going to pass? What is your sense of where we're at? I trust that the council is going to weigh and measure all of the input that they've already received. Uh, There's a 177-page report that was released yesterday, uh, and I'm only 85 pages into it. Uh, And so I hope that they take their time, do their due diligence, and listen to the inputs from everyone. There's a lot to weigh and measure. My job uh, as a volunteer is to advocate on behalf of renters and to bring together the 15 voices that sit on our advisory committee and try and square what those competing interests and and differences of opinion are to inform council's decision. Right. And do you think this is a good plan for renters? I do think it's a good plan for renters. The the plan includes uh, two thirds of uh, proposed building to be market rental, below market rental, non-market housing, uh, which would mean that Of the 30,000 additional homes that could potentially be built over the next 30 years, we're going to see 15 to 20,000 of them be built so that they are at or below market rate. 
uh, and available for folks who make between $40,000 and $90,000 per household. Right. You know, Kit, I tell you, Vancouver politics debate is never boring, is it? No, it's not. But uh, I think that one of the things that's worth paying attention to is we're starting to see a bit of a sea change where we've got young parents like me getting involved and engaged and trying to make sure that we have positive change for our neighborhoods. Interesting. Kit, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Cindy. Have a great day. You too. That's Kit Sauter, co-chair of the Vancouver Renters Advisory Committee. They are very openly publicly saying, listen, the Broadway plan is good for renters in particular. They want to see it happen. That vote goes before Vancouver City Council next Wednesday. If you want to weigh in, tell me how you feel about it. You can. Send me at cknw.com or call our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. So we heard from Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday, first time in a while, that we have heard what's going on with COVID-19 in more detail in our province. There were a few key messages that she definitely wanted to put out there, including that booster uptake is lower than they would like to see. Now, for more on this, I'm joined now by our contributor, Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. I was watching this with great curiosity because it had been a long time since we'd gotten one of these updates. And I watched the presser thinking, okay, why are we not hearing the data? You know, I was expecting to hear about long COVID. I know young people, people in their 30s, very healthy, uh, with no issues, who ended up with long COVID, have had it for six months. In one case, I know a pal who's had it now for a year and a half, and it's debilitating. I thought, okay, certainly we're going to hear a lot about long COVID data. We didn't. I wanted to hear about why other people in other Canadian provinces and in the States are getting offered a fourth shot, but here you've got to be over 70. I I wanted to hear the thinking behind that. I wanted to hear more about uh, this vaccine wastage that Dr. Henry mentioned that we have in BC. Why, Why are we throwing out vaccines? I wanted to know numbers on that. And I know, Simi, that it's in part because the health office has to to worry about public opinion. Um, They have to worry about fear-mongering. They don't want people to live in a scared state. They want people to be able to go about their daily lives to some extent like they used to. I get that, uh, that they don't want to overload people, right, with all this COVID fatigue we keep hearing about. But Folks, I I get that they're sick of hearing about COVID, but that doesn't make COVID-19 go away. And the number of people who've died in BC from COVID-19 just this year is pretty high. We're looking at over 530, over 530 people have died in BC from COVID-19. And one of the weird things that I saw about the presser too was was Dr. Bonnie Henry's mixed messages. And I talked to Karina Ziedler about this. She's a family physician and the co-founder of Protect Our Province. Dr. Henry was mentioning how, you know, vaccines are silver bullets. And yet uh, when we look at things like the fourth vaccine, unlike places in Quebec where they're offering them to all adults, here we're still uh, limiting access to, to fourth doses. That to me seems like a, a bit of a mixed message there. Yes, vaccines are are very important, uh, but they're clearly not enough for us to be able to manage the, the pandemic. Um, and I think a good you know, example of that is if you look in the first four months of our pandemic, 186 people died in the last four months, 531 people have died. uh, And that's despite there being vaccines. So clearly we need more than than vaccines in this case. 
Yeah, Dr. Zeidler doesn't think that everyone should be living in fear, or that's not what she's saying, but she doesn't think we should live in ignorance either. So while there's a lot of talk about uh, vaccines in Dr. Henry's message uh, at the latest briefing, it would have been good to also hear about when we should be masking, which I think is still, I think people should still be masking a lot more than they are. I got in an elevator the other day and someone quickly darted in at the last moment. And in an elevator, there's no ventilation, there's no distancing. And that person wasn't wearing a mask and they were just coughing all over the place. And I just thought, really, can't we just have a few more of these reminders in place from our public health office? And, you know, the thing is, people, people are still dying. Uh, here's Dr. Zeidler again. Yes. People should enjoy their lives, but everybody should be able to have uh, the ability to enjoy their lives. We shouldn't be enjoying our lives at the cost of other people, which is what's happening right now, because people can can be out and about and not have to wear masks or any other protections, and that's putting other people at risk. So. Yes, we want to enjoy our lives, but and we want to move on from this pandemic. But if we're going to move on from this pandemic, we need to all move on together as a society and not leave people behind uh, to suffer and die. Um, there are still so many people dying. And I think people have become numb to the amount of people who are sick, people who are dying, people who are getting long COVID. Yes, you know, yesterday was one of the first times I've ever heard Dr. Henry mentioned that children get long COVID. Mostly what we've been hearing is that children don't get sick, that there's not transmission happening in schools. And now all of a sudden we're being told, yes, kids get long COVID. Well, where's the research being done? What kind of protections are we giving our children right now? We don't, are, we're not giving them any protection whatsoever. Now, Roger, this is so interesting, and I wonder as well, because I think public health officials, they also have to balance the tune-out factor, whereas yeah. I think they want to restrict how much information they put out there because they know the public will tune it out, as your guest said right there. The public will tune it out, but the public deserves to know. Like, that's up to us if we want to tune out. I want more data. I want more information, and I want to put their feet to the fire and 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 get some answers on some like obvious questions like let's talk about the age of uh, vaccinating people giving people boosters like why are we lagging behind other places if there's a reason show me the data and i will make up my own mind if i'm going to tune out i just i don't think it's fair at this point in the pandemic to shield us from information i feel like we as the public deserve that information and what we do with it is is up to us. Don't you get the sense, though, when you are out and about that you are probably in the minority here on that? That's a great question, Simi. Uh, it depends, honestly, what neighborhood I'm in. Like, oh, I do find when I, I go from one neighborhood to another, whether it's in, in my own community in North Vancouver or if I'm in, in Surrey, um, parts of Surrey, I notice, are, are abiding and, and following the the distance recommendations and others are not at all. Um, and I, you know, just the other day at the grocery store, someone was very close to me on purpose. I just knew this person was, was looking for this kind of interaction because I was wearing a mask um, as I do at the grocery store. And she came up right close to me and put her hand on my arm and said, how are you doing today? She didn't have a mask and she was coughing and uh, like deliberately, right? Um, and I distanced myself quickly and I said some, just something politely about, please keep your distance. 
that this person was looking obviously for an altercation, uh, for an interaction to talk about mask or not you know what, masking. Though, the thing that kills me about that though, Raji, is that COVID or no COVID, don't be coughing in public like that. <laughs> Even before COVID, that's bad form. You don't go around coughing near people. True. Very true, Simi. But uh, some people have, have yet to understand that. So yeah, I think, yes, I am in the minority. Yeah, probably. I also have an unvaccinated child, a kid who's too young just exactly, yet to get yeah. vaccinated. So so you never know what's going on in people's lives. And and that was something that I, I would have appreciated Dr. Henry talking about in the briefing too. Like just remind people that you don't know what folks are going through if someone has an autoimmune uh uh, issue or someone in their family might be vulnerable and that what we could do uh, to protect those people is is not asking too much. I would have, again, just would, would have wanted a little bit more information, right. a little bit more data. I could see that. Yeah. And you know what? That's been an ongoing complaint though, hasn't it? Not enough data on all this information. Yes. And what I also heard very loud and clear from uh, Dr. Zeidler was that doctors and nurses continue to be overwhelmed. And this is a story we follow. It goes in the news and then it falls out. But a lot of doctors and nurses are saying that the pandemic has permanently changed their work environment. It's changed who they are as employees of the healthcare system. And they're still overwhelmed. They're still dealing with COVID. They have they have uh, patients who come into ER and they're hanging out in hospital beds in the hallways. They're overwhelmed. They're run off their feet because of the pandemic. And uh, that we don't hear about all the time anymore. We do not. All right, Raji, thank you. Thanks, Sid.